This week's presentation is Capture the Sunshine. And I know I say it every week. This is one of my favorites, <laughs> but, but it is. I love everything in this resource guide. It has the, the best stories, the best information all gathered together in one place. So Capture the Sunshine is kind of a unique presentation because people don't normally think of beauty as being something that has to do with freedom. So on 191, page 191 of the College Bidding Resource Guide, there's a story called Being the Change. And at the very beginning of the article, it talks about uh, the story, uh, the stories in the Bible. And if you're familiar with the Bible, in the book of Judges, it is a really, really dark, desperate, horrible, tyrannical, evil time in the history of the, the Israelites and, and the world. And they were they were doing human sacrifice. There was um, rampant sexual, not just sexual sin, but they were um, raping and pillaging. I mean, if you know anything about the the dark ages of of the middle ages of of the world, um, this was like that, uh, and it was maybe even worse. It was very 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 dark time. And you read through all the book of the, the judges and how the people are just turning away from God and creating, committing all this sin and how, what a horrible time is the worst time in history is basically how they set this all up. And then you turn the page from the book of judges. And do you know what the next book is? Ruth. And at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, it says in the time of the judges, in the time of the judges, there was Ruth. So while all this darkness was going on around them, there was this beautiful story of light that came. And, and I, I mean, what an example that she was and, and her, her mother-in-law. I mean, that whole story was beautiful. It happened in the time of the judges. So no matter how dark things are around us, there's, there can always be that light and we can choose whether or not we want to be that light. So a few years ago, um, my husband and I were, were we had we had lived three years on the on Hawaii, on the island of Oahu. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor there, and we were coming back to the states to uh, move to Nebraska and serve at the Air Force Base there at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha. And my husband, for two decades, just constantly talked about going and seeing the Grand Canyon. I mean, we must have passed by, probably could have thrown a baseball at the Grand Canyon there. I mean, you have to go around the big crack in the in the ground to get anywhere. But we passed back and forth from the, the middle states to the west states, of the east coast to the west coast, traveling through that southern route multiple times. And every single time he'd say, we need to stop at the Grand Canyon. I never had any interest. Like, who cares? It's just a crack in the ground. You go, you see it, you check it off your bucket list, you move on. Had no interest whatsoever. Well, he had been bugging me for so many years. I'm like, okay, we're going to be driving right <laughs> past the Grand Canyon. We are going to stop this time. So it was 2013 and we'd planned all, all the whole trip. And part of it was we were just going to drive through and spend a, a day, I think a day and a half at the Grand Canyon. And I was like, uh, I've got all the kids in the back whining, complaining. I got to deal with that. And we have to stop. So we had it on our bucket list. 
and we drove up to the, um, the the town where the Grand Canyon is the main spot where you go and see it. And the kids were all, you know, we're all tired. It, it was like um, six o'clock and, and I was getting the kids all in the hotel, wanted to get the kids in the hotel and get them all settled. And my husband's like, no, 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 no. We have to, we have to go to the Grand Canyon first. It's almost sunset. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? He's like, no, no, no. It's almost sunset. We gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go right now. I was like, ah, and so finally I gave in and I said, okay, fine. We'll go to Grand Canyon first. So we go over and we get parked and there's this little trail. You're walking down through the trail and then you, you get to this uh, point where the trail crests and the sun was just starting to, to set. And as we came around outside of that trail, uh, let's see why is this not working there we go um this is what i saw i <laughs> this is my <laughs> my view of the grand canyon and i'm just looking at this and i can't even say anything i'm i'm literally speechless and my husband and i and the kids we all just stood there in silence and marveled at this beautiful scene and I could just kick myself all those years I kept saying it's just a crack in the road it's just who wants to see who cares and I mean the majesty of God's hand painting this I just can't even express what I was feeling at that time and I looked at my husband and I just quietly said we need to come back at sunrise <laughs> and I saw a little sign on the side of the road that I updated every day what time is sunrise we had to be there at 5.30 in the morning. And he looked at me and he told me that. I said, you know, it's 5.30 in the morning. And I'm still looking at this breathtaking picture. And I'm just saying, I don't care. We're going to be here at 5.30 in the morning. And I'm dragging the kids out of bed. <laughs> so we did. And the next day, we were able to see this. There's a great quote that's accredited to Gandhi. It says, we must be the change that we want to see in the world. It made me think about um, the story of, of Ruth at the time of the judges. Well, throughout the day, uh, our family spent a lot of time just sitting there and looking out at the Grand Canyon, walking all over the, the rock ledges. And I just, the thought came to me that I need to be the change. I personally need to be the change that I want to see in the world. So, oops, hang on one second here. Okay. So, um, there's a video that comes along with this presentation and I'm just gonna show that real quick.
When you think of freedom, beauty isn't usually something that comes to mind. And yet, beauty is a powerfully freeing element. While reading a book on the Russian Revolution, I came across an interesting tidbit about Lenin, who was known, of course, for his cold, cruel, abusive nature. He once admitted after listening to a sonata by Beethoven, I can't listen to music too often. It affects your nerves, makes you want to say stupid nice things and stroke the heads of people who could create such beauty while living in this vile hell. Contrast that with Viktor Frankl, a Jewish neurologist who spent three years in a Nazi concentration camp. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Dr. Frankl found those that weathered the storm of the camps could find beauty in the simplest things, memories of family, a blade of grass, a sunset. For some, this was survival. For others, it generated feelings of profound gratitude. Dr. Frankel witnessed the way those who held on to these things, those who had purpose in their life, seemed not only to bear their horrific burdens better than most, but also, at great personal sacrifice, helped and comforted others. We who lived in concentration camps, he recalled, can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Helen Keller, who lived her whole life in blindness, realized this. Although the world is full of suffering, she said, it is full also of the overcoming of it. Beauty provides healing and comfort in difficult times. The music we play in our homes, art we display on our walls, it all impacts the way we see and feel things. Even an evil man like Lenin recognized the heartwarming influence of beautiful music. It's sad and horribly tragic that there are those who prefer coldness to warmth. But it also shows that these inspiring influences can reach even the hardest of hearts. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, music is a discipline, a mistress of order and good manners. She makes the people milder and gentler, more moral and more reasonable. Isn't that the kind of people we want to see in the world? The kind of people we want to be ourselves? When Anne Frank was surrounded by darkness, she wrote, I don't think of the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. Mahatma Gandhi reflected, when I admire the wonders of a sunset, or the beauty of the moon, my soul expands in the worship of the Creator. Beauty is a freeing element, infusing us with hope, providing light in the darkness, awakening the soul and moving us to act. We will love more, want to serve more, and want to be more. By filling our homes and hearts with beautiful art, music, stories, and poetry, we create a connection between truth, light, and goodness. Then. No matter how cold the world is or what trials we face, we will always have that beauty to warm us. And that is freedom. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. There is a book called The Freedom Factor. Um, Gerald Lund has written a couple of books that, that we recommend. And this one is very interesting. It's a story about a man who is. Uh, 
trying to change something in the constitution. And one of the founding fathers comes back from the past to help him realize that this isn't a good plan. And he keeps trying to convince him, you know, this isn't the right way to go. This is the right way to go. And, and he's like, okay, I'm not going to listen to the ghost. And he's going to continue to move on uh, with this plan. And finally, the, the founding father says, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to take this to another level. And so he creates a universe, an alternate universe, where the Constitution was never signed. And prior to, in, in the in the real world, this guy meets this girl named Abigail, um, kind of has the romantic um, intentions to her, meets her father, who is this beautiful concert pianist. And he just plays all over the world and people just are in awe of, of his beautiful musical talents. And he, um, let's see, where am I at? There we go. So when an alternate world, when the constitution was never signed, it's a much darker place and people are constantly fighting for freedom. And when he goes and meets Abigail's father in that world, he's sitting quietly in a dark room and he looks down at his hands and they are all twisted and broken. And you can tell that his hands have been tortured. And it, and it has a huge impact on him. And he looks at her father as if to question. And he just looks at him and quietly says, they do not like beauty. Those who do not like freedom do not like beauty. So we have a whole entire world of people who think that they are going to be exempt from the tyranny and oppression that's going to come our way if we don't continue to preserve the freedoms that we have. And we have to find a way to be able to preserve them. And one of those ways is by helping our children understand uh, what freedom looks like, what values and virtue looks like, by the music that we have, the um, the the things that we put on our walls. Uh, sorry, got a media request. Gonna ignore that. Um, so the 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 environment that we set in our home is going to be what determines how our children feel, not just what they know, but how they feel. There's a, a great story, page 198, um, in the Cottage Meeting Resource Guide called The Birdman from Alcatraz. And let's see if we can get there. Hello. Oh, our past man's search for meaning. We talked about this incredible man. Oh, there's one thing I wanted to tell you about Viktor Frankl. When he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, it was very unique. He came up with something called logos therapy. When he was in the concentration camps, while he was a first party witness to all of that, he wrote his book and he did his study as if he was on the outside looking in. So it was like a research project for him. And when he came out and he was rescued, then and he wrote his book, he realized the logos therapy. And it's that idea of you don't choose whether or not you're victimized. You don't choose whether or not somebody's going to hurt you, but you choose how you're going to react to it, how you're going to address it. And one of the things that um, uh, Victor Frankl, he had a, a someone that he emulated, someone who had been through also um, concentration camps and a lot of pain. I, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name right now, but it's but it's in the book Man's Search for Meaning, uh, in the story Man's Search for Meaning in the Cottage Mini Resource Guide. And he said that the, that the man wanted to learn how to endure his trials well. 
That was his whole goal in life. And it became Victor Frankl's goal and part of his logos therapy to be able to endure your trials well. Just like Helen Keller said, there is a lot of darkness in the world, but there's also a lot of overcoming it. And we decide how we're going to do that. I mean, just think of Helen Keller's life and what she went through. So the Birdman of Alcatraz, I'm just going to read this really quick because it's a great short story. After numerous violent crimes, a man who was doomed to a life in prison for months he lived a mean, narrow, pitiful existence. His hate festered and angered and continued to dominate his life. Then one day, a sign of hope and life came into the desolate environment of his cinder block cell. A tiny injured bird fluttered in. The helpless creature somehow touched a seed of compassion within the inmate, and he began to care for it, nursing it back to health. A capacity to nurture and love began to sprout and take root within him. Another bird came to rest at his window. He fed it and it returned. Soon he was talking to his birds with other men, talking about his birds with other inmates. He learned to control his temper and relate more agreeably with the guards, at first to gain favor for his birds, but more genuinely as time went on. More birds came and he gradually built up a small aviary in his cell. When some of his birds began to die, he learned everything he could about bird diseases. He experimented with treatments and found those that worked. He learned to write more effectively so he could communicate his passion for his birds. He published articles about his methods of caring for them, corresponded with a woman who was a fellow bird lover, and even de developed a relationship with her that resulted in her visiting the prison. As his story unfolds, it becomes clear that the more time he spent with his birds, the more human he became. While this is a tragic story, in a sense, it is also a story of great hope. The changes in the Birdman began when a visit from a small bird ignited a small spark of gratitude. This feeling opened the door for a sense of purpose to swell within his heart and displace the elements of darkness. A. Dean Bird said discovery of purpose is like a dose of sunshine that propels men and women forward to new heights of achievement. When we are deeply involved in a positive cause, our souls and even our bodies, it seems, resonate with the power of God. I have a friend who's, um, his, he and his wife uh, had gone through a divorce. And at the beginning, when she left and said she wanted a divorce, he was devastated. And he called me and said, I need to figure out how to get my wife back. And I, I want you to help. Could you help me? And, and I said, well, you know, I can, I can help you. I don't know that I will be able to have your wife come back. She was a, a good friend of mine. And he thought if he could convince me, I'd convince her. And, and I, you know, tried to comfort him. And I said, well, if you really, really want to uh, be someone worthy of, of love, then go and serve someone today. And he's like, what? you want your wife back, go find someone to serve. And he's like, what? So I said, you know, ca I'll call the pastor. Someone is in need of service. And so he did. And there was a gentleman who was in the, in the their community who was trying to do, put a new roof on the house. Well, it turns out that my friend is a uh, hobby construction worker. And it's his hobby. It's what he loves to do on his free time. I thought my friend was crazy for leaving someone like that. <laughs> I'm sure there's other reasons, but he called me later that day. And he was tired. He was exhausted. He had taken he and his teenage son over to this man's house and spent all day doing the roof on his home. And he was going to go back the next day. 
And he said, Kimberly, I just have to tell you that when I woke up this morning, I was in the deepest pit of despair and I had no idea where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And tonight, I mean, my circumstances haven't changed. The situation is still the same, but somehow I feel different. And I'm going back to that man's house tomorrow to finish his roof. And that was the power of being able to overcome that. And while the, the divorce did continue to go through, every day he was able to find someone to serve in some way to look at the goodness. And it helped him navigate through it and help his children navigate through it as well. So even though these things are beyond our control, we still have the ability to be a light in the darkness and, and truth and goodness. Um, there's a, I don't know if you guys have seen the film, uh, The Monuments Men. Great, great, great film. It, it is adult film. Okay. So it does have some, some swearing and some things in it, but these men went over, it's a totally different story than a lot of the stories you hear. These men sacrificed their lives and went over to Germany and, and the countries, the other countries around Germany to rescue the art. And George Clooney, who plays Frank Stokes in in the film, and this is a true story. He said, you can wipe out an entire generation. You can burn their homes to the ground and somehow they'll still find a way back. But if you destroy their history, you destroy their achievements and it's as if they never existed. That's what Hitler, Hitler wants. And that's exactly what we are fighting for. And someone once asked um, Frank Stokes, was it worth the people on your mission who, who lost their lives? And he said, when people see the Mona Lisa smile, when people see Mike, Michelangelo's artwork, and then they can continue to see that for generations and touch their lives, they will know that it was worth the sacrifice. And all of the men who served in, this, in that mission felt that it was definitely worth the sacrifice. Um, Robert M. Edsel from the Monuments Men said, these monuments are not merely pretty things, not merely signs of man's creative power, they are expressions of faith, and they stand for man's struggle to relate to himself, to his past, and to his God. There is um, a really uh, great story that I want to share with you today. Um, I want us to think about while we're sharing the story, what kind of things can we do in our homes to capture the sunshine? the art on our walls, the music that we play, the stories that we read to our children, the books that we make available to them. It's the reason why our children are so distraught within the school system, because the stories that they're reading are not the classic literature. They're not books and stories to touch the heart and, and encourage uh, great values. It, the, the music that is played, um, I don't know if you've been to concerts lately, but the kind of drama that they're putting on the stage and music that they're playing is not always edifying. In a lot of cases, it's not edifying at all. And they're doing this on purpose. It is the whole Lenin-Stalin plan of making everything cold and corrupt. And, and as we talked about in a previous presentation, when you look at the communist goals, that is one of the goals. Deform art, turn it into something ugly, destroy the things that um, make people feel good about themselves. They can't have hope. If you've watched any of these sci-fi movies or um, say even some of the historical movies, 
where they say you can't have hope. Uh, the Patriot, the film The Patriot, one of the things that the the um, commander of the British Army said he he couldn't have and this story the Patriot was it, well it was a fictional story it was based on Swamp Fox a real guy who fought in in the Revolutionary War and the British couldn't stand him and his movement because he gave hope and they were doing everything they possibly could to crush that hope and instill fear in people so that they could be enslaved when you have this art on the walls and the music and and it touches the heart so deeply that it gives people hope to be able to stand the most difficult times. Well, there was a time in our history where this was um, something that brought us all together. You probably haven't heard it, uh, the story. And in fact, when you go to the website of the woman who, who wrote the story, um, she didn't write the story, she recorded it, then that's, that's how she starts out. The, the website that you probably have never heard the story, but it was a powerful story that touched the American people and brought us together. So this story can be found on 187 in the resource guide. You've probably never heard of it. Most people haven't. That's how Dorothy Scheele, curator of the Friendship Train website, introduces one of the most amazing yet mostly forgotten stories from American history. It was Dorothy and another American, Earl Bennett Sr., who is now passed on, who dedicated their lives to preserving this beautiful story. The year was 1947. The people of the world were still recovering from the rages of World War II. Europe was hit especially hard, and Drew Pearson who was a very popular American journalist and radio host, while touring post-war Europe, noticed the communists were being lauded for delivering a few carloads of grain, and it deeply troubled him. And the thought came to him, whoever feeds these people, that's who they will become. And he said that America could do better. He knew that we could do better. So on October 11th, 1947, Drew Pearson opened his famous radio show with his vision of the friendship train, a cross country collection of train cars that would go across the country and pick up food from the American people to send to the people of Europe. This project would be much different than the proposed Marshall Plan at the time, because that plan was all about government and, uh, being imposed and government being regulated. The government would impose the, 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 the mandates and the government would regulate the distribution. While the Marshall Plan was government to government, the friendship plan, the friendship train would be people to people. Parsons sent out the call asking for Americans to donate food from their homes and their kitchens, their gardens, their fields, and the American people responded beyond all expectations. Immediately, communities formed plans to collect food, coordinating efforts to meet up with the friendship train along the way, published routes on um, October, on November 7th. Uh, people realized that maybe they weren't going to be on the, the train's um, path and so they would load up trucks and bring the trucks to where the train was going to be on november 1947 after parsons acknowledged announcement the friendship train began its incredible journey across america beginning in los angeles with a spectacular hollywood send-off and all 
um, and all along the route, ordinary Americans brought bags of flour from their homes, vegetables from their gardens, and canned goods from their storehouses. It was an amazing, amazing sight. And you can see here, all the kids got involved. This is these are real news stories. This is something that that actually happened in our in our history and brought people together. 11 days after leaving Los Angeles, the friendship train arrived in New York City to great fanfare. Um, on every one of the trains that was sent over to Europe, it had this it had this sign. All races and creeds make up the vast melting of America. And in a democratic and Christian spirit of goodwill toward men, we, the American people, have worked together to bring this food to your doorsteps hoping that it will tide you over until your fields are again rich and abundant with crops. I found the story of this train in, um, I guess, about eight, ten years ago. I was just in the kitchen making dinner, and I had uh, Turner Classic Movies on. And if you guys ever watch Turner Classic Movies, in between the movies, they'll show these, these, these old reels from World War II. And this was one of the ones they showed. And I was just, I mean, stymied, dumbfounded, awestruck. And I just wanted to tell this story to everybody. This is a story that every American should know. And this is just a, a piece of the video that um, I saw. Goodwill Project gets a flying start as school children in Hollywood load packages aboard trucks bound for the friendship train. The train, carrying gifts of food for starving Europeans, gets a send-off with a typical Hollywood premiere on the first leg of its trip across the continent. The motion picture industry is giving generously, as are thousands young and old who wish to aid our friends abroad who face either untold suffering or communist control. At Fresno, California, crowds greet the friendship train as it arrives to hook on additional cars of food donated by the city and surrounding countryside. In addition to milk, canned goods, and other food products, gifts of money have been collected. New carloads of vital supplies are coupled on at each stop, and the train is expected to arrive in New York in two sections, hauling 200 cars. Stockton, California is another stop on the friendship route, over which the railroads are carrying the train at no cost as their part of the gift program. It's a green light and a clear track for the friendship train as it rolls across the salt flats of Utah and roars over the endless trestles spanning Great Salt Lake. Mile after mile over America's great west speeds the train that is our personal answer as a nation to the hungry of Europe. Through the snowbound rangeland of the cattle country, this mighty symbol of America's generosity rolls ever eastward. Everyone has helped. Railroads have hauled the train free. Unions have donated labor. Civic organizations have banded to fill the cars with the needed food. The spirit of 48 states is in this enterprise, and at every stop, enthusiastic crowds gather to hear Drew Pearson, originator of the Friendship Train. All have worked. The big people and the little folks have pooled their efforts to fill the cars. From whistle stops off the main line to the metropolitan centers, cars are loaded with food and more food. America's pioneers of the vast West once knew the meaning of hunger. Today, their descendants remember. Hundreds of thousands have joined in the mass effort, and the friendship train grows ever longer after each stop. It carries to Europe not an official government aid program, but the answer of a free people who have heard the cry of their neighbors in war. It is
is the free will offering by an America that wants to share. From an idea, the train has mushroomed into a project in which millions of eager hands are joined. Food becomes a refrain and a theme as thousands of tons pour into the cars destined for Italy and France. And always it's the youngsters who respond eagerly to the call. So huge has the train become that during the last stages of the trip, its 214 cars are broken up into five sections and it picks up speed for the final run. It's a race between America's great humanitarian effort and the bitter winter months just ahead overseas. The vast American nation has poured out its surplus, and New York looms at journey's end for the friendship train. Here is the traditional big town's welcome. Fireboats spray their salute in lower New York Harbor as 33 of the cars on floats are paraded past the Statue of Liberty presented by France to the United States 60 years ago. Today, American food returns to France, America's answer to a call of distress. So um, when Drew Pearson talked about the uh, train and he had made this announcement and called the American people, his vision was 80 boxcars filled with food and supplies going over to the people of Europe. By the time the train made it to New York to be loaded onto the ship, it had 270 train cars completely filled. This had nothing to do with tax dollars. It wasn't a government program. This was the American people reaching out to their brothers and sisters across the sea. The French people were so touched by this incredible gift of love from their brothers across the sea that they had signs all over the place that said, Merci America. And there was a man who had run the trains during World War I in France who decided that they wanted to do something to thank the American people. They wanted to send train cars back to America to thank them. But they didn't have the food and, and the things that were given to them. So what were they going to send? Well, what they sent was pieces of themselves, pieces of their, of their lives. The French people were so moved, they organized a gratitude project, the Mare Sea Train. 49 boxcars were filled, one for each of the 48 states. The 49th state, the 49th train was shared between Washington, D.C. and the territory of Hawaii. The people of France had very little after war, so they gave what they had, precious pieces of their lives. Despite their dire circumstances, over 6 million families contributed some 52,000 gifts, which included things like children's drawings, hand crocheted doilies, and 50 rare paintings. It also, also included where a jeweled Legion Denaire once presented to Napoleon, a Louis XIV uh, carriage and the bugle which signaled the armistice signing. By 1948, the boxcars were filled to capacity and loaded onto the ship Magellan. When the ship sailed from France, 9,000 gifts had to be left on the docks because there wasn't enough room for them. When the ship arrived in New York, it was greeted by waves of Air Force planes and a parade of boats with the Magellan boldly displaying the message, Merci, America. The interesting, um, an interesting fact about the the trains, is that the trains in France, their their um, wheels are wider than the tracks in the United States, and so for them to be able to get the trains to the states 
where they were destined to uh, go to, they had to build platforms to put the train cars on so that they could roll on the tracks and go and uh, be presented at the, at the various different states. And everywhere they went, every single state had big parades and welcoming celebrations when their train car arrived. It was such so exciting. And they would, as they were pulling out the things and showing what, what France had, had given them and they became the sisters across the sea. It was, it was absolutely amazing. And, and then I, I remembered um, every, every state, how I started to read about the cars and I read about North Dakota and North Dakota has this beautiful display of the Mercy train. And I, I was like, I want to, I want to go see, um, go to North Dakota and see their train. And then I remembered, wait a second, every single state has one. And so I thought, okay, well, I was living in Nebraska at the time. So I wanted to go and find, find out where can I see the Nebraska train? Well, this is what I found, <laughs> not at all what I expected. According to the Mayor C train website, Nebraska's uh, car was stunted and was shunted from place to place, first to the State Historical Society, then to the Nebraska 40 and Niners, uh, and eight, the, then to the Nebraska 40 and 8 Society, and finally to a playground in Lincoln. In 1951, an attempt was made to return it to the historical site, society, but they didn't want it. So it was sold to an Omaha junkyard for $45. Its wheels and metal parts were pounded into scrap, and its body converted into a storage shed. Its humiliation finally ended in 1961, when the junkyard was relocated and the boxcar was demolished. My heart literally sank as I read the story of the fate of this priceless gift given to the people of Nebraska. I thought of all those families who showed up by the thousands of train stops across our state to give what little they could to their brothers and sisters across the sea. And what, I wondered, would they think of how we treated this precious gift? And there was something even more special about Nebraska because North Platte, Nebraska had become a haven for the soldiers when they were going over to World War II. They found out that a boxcar of, of uh, their their Nebraska families were going to become, the, their Nebraska soldiers were going to be coming through um, North Platte. And so they put up this whole entire greeting uh, area where they provided them sandwiches and coffee and magazines and welcomed them. Well, when the cars came through, they found out that it was that it was Iowa men and not Nebraska men that were going to be coming through. And they all looked at each other and said, well, what are we going to do? And they said, well, we're going to feed the men from Iowa. And then it started a tradition. And through the whole entire uh, period of World War II, as the soldiers came through on that train, which was which was very frequent from all different states, they were greeted at North Platte. And there were several soldiers that said when they were when they were down inside those 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 pits and 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 hiding behind bunkers and and and, and in the trenches, they they thought about um, the coffee and the sandwiches and the welcoming of North Platte, and it helped them get through that that hard time. And the people beside them would go, "Oh my gosh, did you go through North Platte too? Oh, I remember that it was so wonderful. And it was just this this great fond memory. There's a whole book written about North Platte during that time. Well, when the when the friendship train came through thousands and thousands of families came to North Platte 
from all over the Nebraska and and South Dakota and and Kansas and states that weren't going to be on the on the, the the train route and came to North Platte to fill the cars and they they doubled the cars when they hit North Platte. So just think about the people of Nebraska when they got that train from from the people of France and and in such gratitude what it meant to them. And this this is what we did with it. Now the contents are still are still preserved there at the Historical Society in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska uh, Museum, but they're behind closed doors and you have to have special permission to come see them. And nobody even knows the story. Nobody knows the story and nobody will ever see the Nebraska train. It reminds me of what is happening in America today. Generations ago, families sacrificed everything to give us the precious gift of freedom. They signed their lives away when they put their names onto the Declaration of Independence, and they dedicated their lives to the creation of a more perfect union with the United States Constitution. And just like the Nebraska train, some carelessly dismiss it as old, out of date, and discarded as scrap. I am deeply grateful for the two people who decided that keeping the story of the friendship train and the Mercy train alive was worth their time. I am so grateful for the blessings of liberty America offers. And in spite of everything our country now faces, it is truer now more than ever. The United States is still the freest place on earth. And our freedom, this is not, this is not where America really wants to go. Freedom courses through our veins. And when people realize what it really means to be a socialist or a communist, then they too will want freedom. I had the most unexpected pleasure a few years ago. We were driving through Oregon. My son was living there at the time. And we were driving through a little town called North Bend. And as we were coming around the curb, I just started yelling, oh my gosh, you have to stop, you have to stop, you have to stop. And everybody in the car freaks out. And my husband is like, what is going on? What is wrong? I'm like, it's the train, it's the train, it's the train. Well, I've been telling the story of the friendship train and the Merci train to my children for a, a couple of years at that point. And we were driving by the train, Oregon's train encased in this beautiful uh, this beautiful pavilion to keep it protected. And so we stopped, we were able to take a picture in front of Oregon's train. And there was a little cabin in, in this area. It was, it was a historical area and they had different things that, that were there. It was a park and just a couple of little monuments and the train. And we went inside and my husband asked the lady if there was a story, if they had a printed story of the train. And she said, what are you talking about? Well, he said, well, you have the Merci train up there. And she said, I don't know what it is. It's just sitting there. And so he told her the whole story. I've been telling it all those years of the, of the friendship train and the Merci train. And she started, tears started welling up in her eyes. And she said, I did not know that story. We, we in this little town, have this precious monument right here and we don't even know the value of what we have. And she asked if, if I could please send her the story so that they could print copies and pass it out to people as they came. And now they do. There is um, 
a song. Uh, there's a couple of songs I want you guys to look up this week. Um, yesterday, as I was uh, making, was it yesterday, Saturday, Sunday, as I was making breakfast for the family, I just over and over again, probably 27 times, I played Coming to America by Neil Diamond. You gotta listen to that song. Oh my gosh, what an incredible song that is. Well, a couple of years ago, I was um, traveling through Florida and I went to visit a woman and she had a daughter who is, um, she's mentally handicapped and she was sitting at the table singing a song and I was mesmerized by this song. And I asked her mother, what, what, what is that song? And she said, oh, it's Oh America. I said, I, I never heard that song. And then she showed me the video of the song. Celtic women performed it. And there's a whole story behind it that I, that I know that I could tell you someday, but I was able to meet the man who authored the song. And at the beginning, it was just a, uh, it was just a musical arrangement. And he was able to perform it. I think it was when I think it was when Barack Obama was president, and he was invited to perform the song. And some guy was there, and he was a professional songwriter. And he contacted the composer and said, "I absolutely love that song. It took my breath away, and I I put words to it. I I hope that's okay. You can just throw them away, but I I just felt really moved to do it." And he sent the words to him and he played the words, he played the song and, and sang the words with it. And he said, tears welled up in my eyes. And I knew this, this was supposed to be. And then a few months later, the Celtic women contacted him and said, we would like to record the song. And they did.
last year at the um, our Mar-a-Lago event, Mary Milben, I asked her if she would sing this song. And she called the Celtic women to get the actual background recording because she said, no, this is too important of an event. Um, they said, we don't give our music away. And she said, you'll give it away for this. <laughs> and they did. And and she did an, an incredible job. And there were a lot of tears in the house. Um, the words are very powerful. And I would encourage you to look up the words online and, and read them as you hear this song. Share these share these music with, with your children, your grandchildren, within your sphere of influence. Have them playing in your home. I mean, literally 27 times I played Coming to America. <laughs> and it just, just filled me. The people that came and the dream that they came for. Listen to those words. When you tie the music in with the words, it is it it is moving. It it touches hearts in a way that nothing else could. And you saw that that quote: "Music will change hearts bigger than any sermon." <laughs> but you tie the sermon and the music together, boy, and then you've got magic. So um, I have some assignments for next, for you know, for this presentation and for the uh, upcoming presentation. Um, let's see. Um, so we have for this week, there's a great, great article in the Conjuring Resource Guide called We, Are, we Were Not Poor. And it's all about um, Marlene, a friend of mine wrote this story. And when they were kids, I remember this, when I was a child, I didn't realize that, that we were poor that we that we suffered you know we had people who brought us christmas presents at christmas because our parents couldn't afford it i didn't know any of these things i just loved life and this is a this is a great story of how you can make uh, great things out of small things and it's the it's the time that you treasure together uh, my children still when we talk about the various different things that we've done they remember the simplest things have the greatest impact on them uh, in 2019 there when the snow melted in one day and it rained for, for a whole day and a half um, it flooded Nebraska and really bad really badly and we lost 13 bridges in one day and people who should never have had an issue with flooding had their houses flooded to their second story and they lost almost everything. And our family, as well as several other families, uh, had an opportunity to go and help uh, clean up. We had put on the boots and the jackets and, you know, everything that we needed to have to protect ourselves from what we were getting into. And we spent every Saturday for weeks going over and sometimes in the evenings to their to these people's homes and pulling out their family pictures and I was watching some of these these moms just lovingly very painstakingly pull carefully pull these pictures apart and sit there and dry them with a with a hair dryer to preserve them I mean it was it was amazing and when we talked to our kids about you know what what are the things that you the family things that we did that you remember most it's remember, it's like when we they said do you remember that time we went and, and cleaned up those people's houses that got flooded they remember that it it touches their hearts surface is something that that comes deep within our hearts um the the story Corey ten boom forgiveness please 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 read that so 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 good um the music video oh america share it listen to it 
it's got millions of views for good reason. Attend a musical event or watch one on video and view the newsreel video train, the friendship train. It's, uh, I didn't show the full seven minutes. Uh, the full seven minutes is, um, will be sent out to you so you can view it. And it's in the Hostess Resource Center. Preparation for next week's. Next week is a time to sew. And uh, there is a great um, segment that David Barton did on manners and freedom and how they're tied together. It's amazing the things that are tied to freedom that you wouldn't think were tied to freedom. Um, Fortify Our Homes is a great article. I, if you get a chance, please read that. And, and then um, there is an article that uh, I wrote uh, in when I was a, a columnist. Well, I guess I'm still in a columnist with Tom Hall. And it was Raising Boys in a Feminist World. And that is a really great article to read too. So um, that's just the preparation for uh, next week and follow up from this week. And I just want to leave you with a statement from Ken Hall, which is my wish for you. May you have the strength of faith, be surrounded by the love of family, and know the beauty of freedom. Mm -hmm.